0: Let's get kinky. You're listening to the Funny Dom Podcast. Good evening, folks. Welcome to the show. This week, I'm going to talk a little bit about primal energy and primal dominance and what that looks like and feels like and perhaps sounds like for me. We're going to have a few listener questions and uh, thank you very much to the folks who have sent those in. And as our special wrap-up segment at the end of the show, this week we're going to start with our reading series. I'm going to start Outlander, which I teased you with last week. So we're going to get into that. I hope you're comfortable and ready to enjoy the show in however you prefer, whether it's uh, bedtime listening to go to sleep to, which is wonderful or maybe in a hot bath or maybe it's part of your morning routine and you're exercising or going for a walk or a run or doing some chores or something meditative like washing dishes or cleaning however it is you like to enjoy the show I'm having a a nice hot cup of tea it's late night right now as I record this so while I'm sitting here in my Daddy Roe with my cup of tea. Let's talk about primal dominance. Uh, this uh, week's topic was suggested by Bunny She's a good girl um, and she's experienced my own primal side quite a bit and she said she'd like to hear Daddy talk about that. Uh, primal energy and primal kind of identities usually associated with a primal prey kind of dynamic, which in DS is often associated with kind of hunter prey, which is a, a literal kind of reference to that kind of uh, actually kind of chasing, hunting, capturing um, kind of uh, a form of play and for the submissive to be the prey, to literally kind of run to flight um, and to be chased and to be captured. And um, for some that uh, is quite literal and they will like to play with, uh, with running away and with being chased. And whether that's just around a room <laughs> or around a house or in a, in a kind of wider area, it is about that uh, dynamic of being prey to a, to a predator, to, a, a, uh, you know, to an, a, an animal and a primal kind of energy that is going to uh, attack you. And for me, in a, in a dynamic, my primal energy is very kind of yeah, carnivorous. It's very kind of bitey, as, uh, as Bunny would say. And I do get quite bitey. It's also very grabby and grippy. Um, it really comes out quite a bit in aftercare for me which I'd be interested in hearing if that's uh, common with other people too with other doms so it comes out in aftercare as a a form of most kind of relaxed protection is how it kind of rises up so after a scene and the protective energy and the kind of ownership energy that kind of territorial um it's it's yeah let's say it's very primal it is very kind of elemental so I really want to like grab and hold and squeeze and crush and it's very kind of protective but it's also very very territorial very very dominating it's really like make the submissive feel like a meal you know feel like a like a, like a half eaten meal like the rest is mine too kind of feeling um, as well as the kind of praise and and kind of protection assurance of wanting to like hold and hug and make sure that that um, my partner is is safe and is okay and is and is is ready to um, you know reassure me back as well so I think it's also like a, a kind of connection need a need to kind of really deeply connect and to feel mutual assurance and then to kind of solidify that into a, a kind of owned state um that's the kind of energy of it and then it kind of comes out and that turns into kind of more grippy bitey and you know scratchy and and often not all the time but often does end in kind of or does turn into more play kind of energy for me um so mm, that's um that's kind of how it kind of raises up in in myself if you'd like to share your experiences with primal energy and primal play, please just uh, send me a, a DM voice message and, and maybe we'll include some of those in a future show and keep this discussion on primal prey going. I do think, I do think that uh, Bunny was hoping for a growl as well. So I'm not sure if anyone else listening wants to hear a growl, but, but just in case you do, here's the kind of growl that I might express during play. <sighs> I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, let's get to some questions. If you had the choice to design your own toy, what toy would it be first of all, and what, like, theme would it be? So would it be pink, would it be soft and cute, or would it be, like, hardcore? <laughs> I don't know. If I could design my own toy, what would it be like? That's a great question. Ooh, if we have like, a branded TFD, like, kinky toy... There's so many different kinds. I am talking to a uh, to a rope a rope person about kind of like branding a kit, um, but um, in terms of like a toy, I, I think probably a paddle um, that just seems like a good place to start. I think uh, I think if I had twelve options, then I could have one of each different kind of thing and cover a spectrum because it, it is difficult thinking of would it be. Soft and squishy, or pink, or would it be hardcore, as you say, before you acutely giggle and run away from your own question? Um, I kind of want all those things. I have a bit of a bit of a wide spectrum uh, to my to my identity and my you know kind of tendencies. So I like the idea of of kind of like a cute thing for when that is needed, but also when you say hardcore, and I think, ooh, like a, a paddle with you know with like teeth or sharp bits or or um, you know, like the vampire glove kind of kind of thing, because um, I got to use those not too long ago, and that was fun. Um, so mm. <laughs> I think I'd need at least three. So if I had three options, then I would have a really cute thing, um, like maybe some maybe some cute clamps, but um, custom made for to clamp like a nice pussy. That would be nice. So it's a little bit of a mix. And then I would have a paddle. And I'd want a paddle with one side that's like for like good girl side. And then the other side that's like hardcore or like naughty girl side. And then third one I think would have to be I think a remote vibe. Because they're so much fun. It's like a little TFD remote vibrator that's small enough to fit, you know, discreetly in underwear. So you can do, you know, Discrete public play. Help us out. Let us know how to vet new potential play partners. Thank you. Put simply, ask questions. Ask a lot of questions. Get as much information on the person's attitudes, opinions, experience. That's what vetting really is. Now you can do it in a, in a systematic way. That's why I wrote a vetting guide to make it kind of structured um, but um, if you are curious as to the fundamentals, then that's really what it's about, is just getting the information uh, about this person, not just what they say they're into, but what have they actually experienced, what time have they put into learning or improving what they know. If they're, if they're inexperienced, then talk about that and what they want to experience and what they haven't experienced yet and how they feel about that like get a sense of their of their self-awareness of their of their genuine uh security you know is there a lot of ego there you know like use your intuition and your common sense you know um to get a feel for it now those things can be you know taken advantage of and can be wrong that's why there are certain questions that are pretty objective like one of the main points in my vetting guide is to Ask the person if you can be put in touch with another partner, you know, a current partner or a former partner, to speak to them about this person. Now, I've had newer uh, DOMs or subs say to me like, "Oh, well, I've I've not had many partners, or I'm not currently, you know, friendly with a partner that I could, you know, be putting new partners in touch with," and so they feel like, "Oh, I'm does that mean I'm not, you know, legitimate or I'm." Going to be perceived as a not uh, not good you know prospective partner, but n- no, as long as you're honest about that and your reaction to being asked for that contact is healthy, because that's the that's the really big thing about vetting is it's not just the answers to the questions, it's how the person answers. So if you ask a prospective uh, dom to be put in touch with another partner, and they irk at all, if they act defensive or if they try and minimize or, or, or dismiss the, what you're even asking in any way, that's an answer. Like that's telling you that they've got some kind of insecurity or something to hide. Maybe other things they've said are uh, not true. I would say asking questions is the major thing and making sure that some of those questions are critical and don't second guess asking questions. Don't feel like you're being rude by looking out for your own well being, safety and compatibility. Because you can also just not be compatible when you're vetting. It doesn't always um, narrow down to finding the red flags. You know, like, it's not just that. It's, is this person good for you? Maybe they're just not good for you. Maybe they're a good fit for somebody else. So that's also vetting is finding out what they actually want out of a relationship because you don't want to be quite fundamentally compatible and this person is, is, uh, is not uh, a fake in any way. But then three months in, you realise... You're actually after completely different relationships, you know, and, th- and that could be very challenging. So keep in mind that you're protecting yourself in the future and your own time as well as your safety. So ask all the questions. Spend a good few hours just kind of like critically interviewing each other. That's what you should be doing. Like let's, let's have like a drink or coffee and let's ask each other a bunch of questions. That's really what fetting is about. Hi, sir. Could you explain the process or ceremony of being self collared or collared by a dominant? We talked about self-coloring uh, last week on the show. Opened with uh, a good, um, good kind of dive into self-coloring. So that might be worth going back. I might, um, I'll make sure you get that, that episode, to have a listen to caller. Um, Collaring by a dominant, um, we didn't really cover that much, so I might kind of look at that. That uh, that also is a um, I wouldn't say misunderstood, but I think people are unaware of how flexible um, that can be, depending on the relationship and on the 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 way the uh, the the people in that dynamic want that collaring to serve them. So it's uh, essentially. A commitment ceremony, so I mean, it's it's really is like a kinky kind of wedding ritual, but you get to choose more about it. It's you know, it's not uh, it's not a, as built on a convention. Um, you can really kind of choose what it means. So some people might collar uh, as a, a a kind of level of like almost like going steady, almost like you know, like this is a this is a dynamic and we're kind of set and we want to continue in this and this is a sign of that. And uh, for others, it might be much more of a kind of long-term commitment of we've, we've gone through all that, we may have been together for quite some time and now we want to move this to a kind of permanent, like this is a instilled dynamic. This is not something that's like in development or being explored. This is like I want to be attached to you dynamically for the future you know full stop um so it's more kind of um like a permanent kind of power exchange symbol so it really depends on what you what you want it to be um i I, I do think a ritual is is definitely important even if it's um even if it's purely a kind of short-term um, you know, symbol, it still has meaning to it. And I think it's more about the kind of giving it the ritual, imbuing the collar with meaning. And that that meaning will always be there. You know, the the worth of the dynamic of the relationship is not the length of time that it spans. It's the relationship itself. So imbuing the collar by giving it some form of ritual. I did work with someone who we, we discussed a... A, a collaring ceremony that he was um, putting together for his sub where they were going to go away, kind of into the into the wilderness, and they were going to work out a um, like a, um, a, a protocol that um, might even be non-verbal of kind of preparation, and they're going to have a fire, and like it was sounding, it was coming together like this very kind of beautiful, kind of nature-based kind of thing, um, and I think, um, yeah, it's it, it's a very kind of elemental ritual, romantic side of, 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 of kink. And it's um, it's kind of up to you and your dynamic to kind of collaborate on what it can be and what it means. And um, it also doesn't have to have any of that. Like, collar is just a thing. It can, it's totally fine and healthy for it just to be an accessory as well, to just be a, a gift um, that you can wear the same way you might wear... Say a perfume or a cologne that someone got you, and so it makes you think of them, and it's a nice gift, it's a positive thing, it's attached to them, but it might not necessarily be a symbol of the dynamics, um, you know, commitment necessarily, you know, more than any other kind of personal gift is. So it's really up to you to kind of talk about. To support this space and to get access to TFD's exclusive guides to kink, spicy content, and more. Check out his Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the funny Dom. Well, thanks so much for those questions, folks. And please remember anytime you have a question, just DM me with a voice message on Instagram at the funny Dom Returns or the funny Dom Podcast, and I'll answer them in a future episode. Okay, folks, it's time for the special end segment of the show, which I teased last week. I've got my fresh cup of sleepy time tea, and it's time to begin reading Diana Gobolden's Outlander. So, here we go. Outlander, by Diana Gabaldon. People disappear all the time. Ask any policeman. Better yet, ask a journalist. Disappearances are bread and butter to journalists. Young girls run away from home. Young children stray from their parents and are never seen again. Housewives reach the end of their tether and take the grocery money in a taxi to the station. International financiers change their names and vanish into the smoke of imported cigars. Many of the lost will be found, eventually, dead or alive. Disappearances, after all, have explanations. Usually. Part 1. Inverness, 1946. Chapter 1. A New Beginning. It wasn't a very likely place for disappearances, at least at first glance. Mrs. Bard's was like a thousand other Highland bed-and-breakfast establishments in 1946, clean and quiet, with fading floral wallpaper, gleaming floors and a coin-operated water heater in the bathroom. Mrs Bard herself was squat and easygoing, and made no objection to Frank, lining her tiny rose-sprigged parlour with the dozens of books and papers with which he always travelled. I met Mrs Bard in the front hall on my way out. She stopped me with a pudgy hand on my arm and patted at my hair. Dear me, Mrs Randall. <laughs> oh, that's our first accent. Dear me, Mrs Randall, you cannot go out like that. Here, just let me tuck that bit in for you. There, that's better. You know, my cousin was telling me about a new poem she tried. Comes out beautiful and holds like a dream. Perhaps you should try that kind next time. I hadn't the heart to tell her that the waywardness of my light brown curls was strictly the fault of nature, and not due to any dereliction on the part of the permanent wave manufacturers. Her own tightly marcelled wave suffered from no such perversity. Yes, I'll do that, Mrs Bard, I lied. I'm just going to meet Frank. We'll be back for tea. I ducked out of the door and down the path before she could detect any further defects in my undisciplined appearance. After five years as an army nurse, I was enjoying the escape from uniforms by indulging in brightly printed blouses and long skirts, totally unsuited for rough walking through the heather. Not that I had originally planned to do a lot of that. My thoughts ran more on the lines of sleeping late in the mornings and long, lazy afternoons in bed with Frank. Not sleeping. (laughs) However, it was difficult to maintain the proper mood of languorous romance with Mrs Bard industriously hoovering away outside our door. "'That must be the dirtiest bit of carpet in the entire Scottish Highlands,' Frank had observed that morning as we lay in bed listening to the ferocious roar of the vacuum in the hallway. "'Nearly as dirty as our landlady's mind,' I agreed. "'Perhaps we should have gone to Brighton after all.'" We had chosen the Highlands as a place to holiday before Frank took up his appointment as a history professor at Oxford. On the grounds that scotland had been somewhat less touched by the physical horrors of the war than the rest of britain and was less susceptible to the frenetic post-war gaiety that infected more popular holiday spots and without discussing it i think we both felt that it was a symbolic place to re-establish our marriage we had been married and spent two spent a two-day honeymoon in the highlands shortly before the outbreak of war seven years before A peaceful refuge in which to rediscover each other, we thought, not realising that while golf and fishing are Scotland's most popular outdoor sports, gossip is the most popular indoor sport, and when it rains as much as it does in Scotland, people spend a lot of time indoors. Where are you going? I asked Frank. I asked as Frank swung his feet out of bed. I'd hate the dear old thing to be disappointed in us, he answered. Sitting up on the side of the ancient bed, he bounced gently up and down, creating a piercing, rhythmic squeak. The hoovering in the hall stopped abruptly. After a minute or two of bouncing, he gave a loud theatrical groan and collapsed backwards with a twang of protesting springs. I giggled helplessly into the pillow, so as to not disturb the breathless silence outside. Frank waggled his eyebrows at me. You're supposed to moan ecstatically, not giggle, he admonished in a whisper. She'll think I'm not a good lover. You'll have to keep it up for longer than that, if you expect ecstatic moans, I answered. Two minutes doesn't deserve any more than a giggle. Inconsiderate wench, I came here for a rest, remember? Lazy bones, you'll never manage the next branch on that family tree unless you show a bit more industry than that. Frank's passion for genealogy was yet another reason for choosing the highlands. According to one of the filthy scraps of paper he lugged to and fro, some tiresome ancestor of his had something to do with something or other in the region back in the middle of the 18th, or was it 17th century. If I end up as a childless stub on my family tree, it will undoubtedly be the fault of our untiring hostess out there. After all, we've been married almost seven years, Little Frank will be quite legitimate without being conceived in the presence of of a witness. If he's conceived at all, I said pessimistically. We had been disappointed yet again the week before, leaving for our highland retreat. With all this bracing fresh air and healthy diet, how could we help but manage here? High tea... The night before had been herring-fried, lunch had been herring-pickled, and the pungent scent now wafting up the stairwell strongly intimated that breakfast was to be herring-kippered. Unless you're contemplating an encore performance for the edification of Mrs Bard, I suggested, you'd better get dressed. Aren't you meeting that parson at ten? The Reverend Mr Reginald Wakefield, Minister of the local parish, was to provide some rivetingly fascinating baptismal registers for Frank's inspection. Not to mention the glittering prospect that he might have unearthed some mouldering army dispatches or some such that mentioned that notorious ancestor. What's the name of that six times great-grandfather of yours again, I asked? The one who mucked about here during one of the risings? I can't remember if it was Willie or Walter. Actually, it was Jonathan. Frank took my complete disinterest in family history, placidly, but remained always on guard, ready to seize the slightest expression of inquisitiveness as an excuse for telling me all the facts known to date about the early Randalls and their connections. His eyes assumed the fervid gleam of the fanatic lecturer as he buttoned his shirt. Jonathan Wolverton Randall. Wolverton for his mother's uncle. A minor knight from Sussex. He was, however, known by the other, rather dashing nickname, of Blackjack, Something he acquired in the army, probably during the time he was stationed here. I flopped face down on the bed and affected to snore. Ignoring me. Ignoring me. Frank went on with his scholarly exegesis. He bought his commission in the mid-thirties. 1730s, that is and served as a captain of dragoons. According to those old letters Cousin May sent me, he did quite well in the army. Good choice for a second son, you know. His younger brother followed tradition as well by becoming a curate, but I haven't found out much about him yet. Anyway, Jack Randall was highly commended by the Duke of Sandringham for his activities before and during the Forty-Five, the 2nd, Jacobite rising, you know. He amplified for the benefit of the ignorant amongst his audience, namely me. You know, Bonnie Prince Charlie and that lot. I'm not entirely sure the Scots realised they lost that one, I interrupted, sitting up and trying to subdue my hair. I distinctly heard the barman at that pub last night refer to us as Sassanox. Well, why not, said Frank equably. It only means Englishman, after all, or at worst, outsider, and we're all of that. I know what it means. It was the tone I objected to. Frank searched through the chest of drawers for a belt. Ooh. (laughs) He was just annoyed because I told him the beer was weak. I told him the true Highland brew requires an old boot to be added to the vat, and the final product to be strained through a well-worn undergarment. Ah, that accounts for the amount of the bill. Well, I phrased it a little more tactfully than that, but only because the Gaelic language hasn't got a specific word for drawers. I reached for a pair of my own, intrigued. Why not? Did the ancient Gales not wear undergarments? Frank leered. You've never heard that old song about what a Scotsman wears beneath his kilt? Presumably not gents' knee-length step-ins, I said dryly. Perhaps I'll go out in search of a local kilt-wearer whilst you're cavorting with Vickers and I'll ask him. We'll do try not to get arrested, Claire. The dean of St Giles College wouldn't like that at all. Now as it nears 2am and I've finished my second cup of tea, I'll leave Outlander there as we've made a, uh, a beginning into this adventure, and we'll continue that next week. I hope you enjoyed the show, and the questions, and the growl, and the story. And I hope you have a very good week ahead. Have fun, play safe, and I'll see you next time. To support this space and to get access to TFD's exclusive guides to kink, spicy content and more, check out his Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash thefunnydom.